Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi, Dan. What up, Leslie? Oh, you know, Dodgers beat the Giants twice. I'll take that. Fair enough. And it is it is May, so happy May to those who celebrate. That's and right. And it's uh, been a very bizarre week um today as we just ahead of our recording we got, got finally saw the trailer for hbo's house of the dragon dave chappelle got tackled on stage and the da here is not pressing charges and urkel yeah urkel almost picked a fight with uh, a fist fight with mama winslow during family matters so and then there's you know this little thing with the supreme court and you know abortion rights so <sighs> the world and by a little thing i mean holy fucking shitballs that little little thing that's prevent that's presented a gigantic impediment or weight upon the entire week. But anyway, we will we will talk about TV and attempt to be as peppy as possible because TV is nothing if not peppy. Yeah, I mean, let's start, dive right into headlines and just get this show on the road. Number one, leading off with headlines, Roku is among the bidders for a minority stake in Lionsgate-controlled premium cable network Stars. That's going to be interesting to, to follow. That would be a what I believe is a 20% stake in Stars. So I don't know how that would affect them. Or I mean, they've already, look, Roku already has a licensing deal for uh, for Lionsgate movies after they are already debut on Stars. So a further partnership there, a bigger financial stake. Does Roku want to do original programming? Yes. Do they want a linear cable network? Ah, maybe Roku still has all of that sweet, sweet quibi programming. So, uh, and so don't forget Roku. Zoe's extraordinary playlist was a Lionsgate show, so they do have a business relationship there. Well, we will we, we will see if that ends up being anything interesting. Continuing along, Apple TV Plus is developing a reboot, television reboot of the 1991 Nick Nolte and Barbara Streisand romantic drama Prince of Tides. Thus. Also, really, the Pat Conroy novel, which was really one of my favorite books as a young person. So I would like to see it given a good chance to be fleshed out with the help director Tate Taylor on board to write. On casting front, Game of Thrones alum Nikolai Kosterwaldo will star opposite Jennifer Garner in Apple's The Last Thing He Told Me from executive producer Reese Witherspoon. Emmy winner Allison Janney will star along Kristen Wiig and Laura Dern in Apple's Mrs. America. Jeff Daniels is starring in Man in Full, the Netflix limited series from David E. Kelly that is based on the Tom Wolfe bestseller. And Bruce Greenwood 
has replaced the ousted Frank Langelhoff in Netflix's The House of Usher. Interesting. All of these big doorstop tomes moving forward in development. So maybe we will get a couple months where everything is not based on a seven or eight part documentary series on Netflix. They can actually be based on big books again. In renewal news, HBO Max's Julia and the Minx, as well as Apple's Pachinko, will each return for second seasons. And over on CBS, The Equalizer has been renewed for two additional seasons. We've talked to the showrunners of three of those four shows. Sorry, The Equalizer. Yeah, you can go back and listen to our interview with Chris Kaiser from episode 162 in April about Julia and the great Ellen Rappaport joined us in March in episode 159 to discuss Minx, one of my favorite shows this year. And of course, Sue Hugh was in episode 160 in March for Pachinko. Nice little run we had there, Dan. Lots of renewals. And those are shows that we, for the most part, like very much. So glad to see them coming back. I, I can't imagine how a circumstance would have existed wherein certainly Pachinko wouldn't have been renewed. But everyone takes their time and does everything on their own schedules. Yeah, we've got a pretty good track record, Dan. I mean, I think we've only maybe had maybe one or two guests whose shows didn't get renewed. So well, I'm not going to say I, we have good taste, but we have good taste. I, I think there's more. And sometimes it's it's things like Teenage Bounty Hunters, where yeah. it definitely wasn't our fault that show wasn't renewed. We we did everything we could, and, and Netflix blew that one. And hey, that's on them. No big deal. Right. Right. Elsewhere, on the franchise front, James Gunn is prepping a Peacemaker spinoff built around Viola Davis's character, Amanda Waller, who previously appeared in the Suicide Squad feature films. And Paramount Plus is readying a new Jackass TV series. God, if they can just convince Viola Davis to do an episode of Jackass. There you go. I knew you were going to make that connection. It, you put them next to each other in the outline. How could I not have made that connection? Jeez. I mean, it's a franch it's franchise news. How else would you group them? I don't know, but I would still like to see uh, Viola Davis um, hanging out with Johnny Knoxville and the gang and doing something horrifying. Um, but I also really wouldn't because Viola Davis admires her dignity and I do as well. <laughs> In, in new series orders, Dead to Me creator and, again, TV's top five guest, uh, Liz Feldman, has set a real estate comedy, No Good Deed, inspired by the real estate scrolling we all did during the quarantine at Netflix. Part of her overall deal with the streamer, the third and final season of Dead to Me will premiere in the fall. Netflix is also reteaming with the Cobra Kai guys, who have now been guests on the podcast multiple times. Twice. On the, multiple Twice, Twice equals multiple <laughs> for the action comedy Obliterated, which was previously picked up straight to series at TBS. You might have heard last week that uh, that TBS and TNT not so much in the uh, in the, the scripted space anymore. So this makes sense. And continuing the act grad, Joey King, who the Internet tells me is a huger star than perhaps we necessarily appreciate on this podcast. Uh, she will star in the Holocaust survival drama, We Were the Lucky Ones, for Hulu. And in news from the late Friday news dump, it came out obviously hours after our last episode did, The CW has canceled DC dramas Legends of Tomorrow and Batwoman as the network begins what is expected to be a wave of cancellations ahead of its sale to station group Nexstar. Sources say there's more coming, get heading into the upfronts in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a different year for the CW, which we've talked about on this show before. And as for why these two DC shows got the early acts, sources say it's because the studio behind both Warner Brothers Television did not want to pay the rent on the sound stages for either show. 
at this point. So when you change your business model and you no longer make these shows profitable, a lot of these shows are going to go away. So pouring one out to to all of our friends at both shows. Speaking of things that broke pretty much right after we recorded a podcast last week, uh, James Corden will sign off from CBS's Late Late Show in 2023. So let the speculation on his replacement officially begin. Leslie, speculate. You. <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily have speculation. I, you know, they're the, the look. It's all the same darn names. Uh, I mentioned Amber Ruffin as a great candidate for the Emmy hosting job. Might as well offer her this chance as well. I, I don't really see that happening because she clearly has, you know, a show on Peacock and also has a contract <laughs> with Seth, the Seth Meyers show as well. So it doesn't seem necessarily like that's likely. In addition, if the Amber Ruffin show were doing well enough on Peacock for CBS to see value in bringing her over to a much higher profile slot, NBC would be wise to lock her up and get her on her own show as soon as possible because she's part of the brand. So I don't really see that. What what seems more plausible if anyone thought it was a thing they wanted to do is the the bantering about Trevor Noah, uh, just because he is sort of the corporate family and it feels like the sort of thing like if he has decided after seven or eight years that he's done what he wanted to do on The Daily Show and simply like the idea of a different challenge, he's right there in the corporate family. He's very, very well tested. He is an extraordinarily versatile performer, which is to say he could absolutely do the job if that's a thing he wanted to do. He may, however, like the fact that he very clearly has a lot of control over what happens on The Daily Show, which he probably would not in the same circumstance uh, on CBS in the late night slot. Like, you know, he, he takes time off and does his various touring things when he wants to take time off to do the White House Correspondents Dinner or whatever that's built into his contract. I don't necessarily know that that would be something that would fit the Corden slot. But he seems like a good answer to me or like a fine answer if he wanted to. Yeah. I mean, if you want to look at who else in the in the Paramount portfolio could or would make sense. I mean, this is a reach considering he's got such a full plate of scripted shows and movies and acting stuff going on. But Tyler Perry, that would definitely be, you know, look, if if he if it comes down to. Tyler Perry gets to do what Tyler Perry wants to do. And, you know, I have one more idea, Dan, and this has been we had a great listener question come in uh, from the mailbag on this one. And I haven't been able to get an answer, which is why we haven't talked about it. But remember in the height of quarantine when Viacom CBS or then Viacom CBS, now Paramount, bought the rights and shelled out it was like 80 something million dollars, maybe even more than that. Um, for the rights to, to John Krasinski's Some Good News. And we haven't seen jack shit come from that. I don't know. I mean, Krasinski is available. We know he can host. We know he's got a po that positivity vibe. I don't know that that's exactly what CBS wants to replicate after having Corden kind of done that. But and I also don't know if Krasinski would want to do that because that's a full time job and he's an actor and a director. And that those are really, really important things to him. So who knows? Yeah, I, I can't see why he'd want to do that. Also, there is the whole it if they hire another white guy whose name yeah. starts with J, is is that really going to be a thing that anyone is going to respond well to? And I'm going to say that the answer is no, not really. So, but also, I think Krasinski thinks of himself as as a serious filmmaker, and I don't know that you get to be a serious filmmaker and host a late night talk show. But Tyler Perry, on the other hand, 
does 75 different things at once, all he would have, presumably they would have to move location shooting to Atlanta. I can't imagine that he would uh, want to move out of his gigantic Atlanta compound. But if they were to let him do that, Tyler Perry likes to do as many things as humanly possible. So it might actually be the kind of thing that might amuse him. But yeah, and for a company that's been criticized for its lack of diversity in, in the last couple of years. I don't know, just throwing that out there. And then, you know, we keep talking about TBS and TNT. You know, there's full frontal with Sam B. I don't know how much longer she has on her deal without looking that up. But if she's looking for a bigger platform and they don't want to spend the money, we saw this week, actually, TBS and TNT decided against um, airing the SAG Awards, which they've aired for decades at this point. I remember writing a paper on it in college when it was airing on TBS. Um, and what how was it that, drove, what was that how it drove me nuts. I mean, it was for a women in, women's studies class and how it drove me nuts that they kept saying the actor goes to as if the actor was only one gender. So anyway, I'm a, I'm a nit, I was nitpicky in college. So anyway, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of possibilities or they could just pull some, you know, something new. I mean, at the time, James Corden wasn't an, a household name in a, for American viewers. So there's a lot of opportunity and, and look, they're, they're in no rush. He's going to be around until next year. So. Lots of time to figure that out. So wrapping up headlines, we're going to file this one under gone too soon and news that was kind of a news dump from late Friday and and over the weekend. But Netflix has scrapped three kids focused animated series, including one created by Meghan Markle and another from kids programming queen Chris Nee as the streamer continues to tighten its purse strings after losing a sizable chunk of its market value after a subscriber loss of 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter. So the streaming giant late last week also canceled Space Force after two seasons, the second of which saw the Steve Carell comedy moving its filming locations in order to reduce the price tag on the show, add a co-showrunner in a bid to kind of improve the quality. And yeah, that didn't work. So gone after two seasons, Steve Carell, sources say, earned more than $1 million per episode, uh, considering in fees for co-creator, star, and executive producer. So an expensive mistake there. (sighs) Up next, number two, Peacock giveth and Peacock taketh away. This week, the NBC Universal back streamer canceled its Saved by the Bell reboot after two seasons. Dan, I know a lot of people were upset about this one, although admittedly, personally speaking, I couldn't get into this one and probably going to get spam for this one, but wasn't a huge fan of the original. But back when we had Tracy Wigfield on, she told us in episode 95 from November 2020 that she envisioned the update running for, quote, multiple seasons focused on the new class. What's interesting to me is that this is kind of the last one of the last shows that was really greenlit by Peacock's previous regime, that one led by Bill McGoldrick, who was handpicked under Bonnie Hammer when they both were had, had their hands all over the streamer. Now, of course, Peacock is under the purview of Susan Rovner and Francis Berwick and a whole content group that they oversee, including NBC and all the cable networks. And what we've seen more recently, and we talked about this a little bit last week, too, is Rovner and company have been greenlighting kind of these more, I don't know, water cooler shows. They've just picked up Bupkis, the Pete Davidson semi-autobiographical comedy. They've got reboots of some of Universal Pictures' biggest tent poles, including Pitch Perfect, Ted, and Field of Dreams, which we announced will shoot in Iowa this year. Um, but yeah, it's starting to feel, at least from reading the tea leaves here, like Peacock wants to be more than a home for broad-skewing content that could also double on a, on NBC. 
you know, and if you remember, and, you know, Peacock originally had a bunch of NBC transfers that didn't get picked up to pilot or get that didn't get picked up to series at NBC. And they picked them up instead for the streamer. You had the Dan Brown show, The Lost Symbol. Remember, AP Bio was rescued as Peacock's first ever original series pickup after NBC canceled it. And Rovner and company, you know, when you look at some of the stuff that they've picked up lately, Twisted Metal is a, is a high profile show. I've been lucky enough to see a couple episodes of the Queerest Folk reboot. That is definitely going to be part of the conversation and move the needle. You've got Rain, Rain Johnson's Poker Face with uh, Natasha Leone, former TV's top five great guest, Natasha Leone. The Vampire Academy series from Julie Pleck. And then you've got the Mrs. Davis, which is from Damon Lindelof. So at least looking at, at, at their list of recent pickups, it really does seem like you're starting to see more of a strategy change and maybe a little more money being spent over there. I think we're going to have to see how they actually look like, for example, the problem with Brave New World was not that there wasn't money spent on it. It, was... it also wasn't a show that was made for streaming. That was a, if you go back, that was in the works at USA Network and sci fi for like five or six years before it even aired on Peacock. I, I, and I think that, you know, I will we'll see. I, I, this was one where Saved by the Bell did have an audience that was that was passionate about it. Obviously, Peacock knows to a level that we do not know exactly how big or how small that audience is, you know, on the on the purely anecdotal life within my bubble side of things, my bubble was very unhappy about this. But was my bubble the entire totality of the number of people who were upset about it? It seems distinctly possible. Uh, I, you know, I thought it was I thought it was a show that had an approach and had a purpose. I thought it was only fitfully funny, and I would have loved for it to have been more consistently funny. But I, I did think it was a show with with a fairly big heart and a fairly wide ranging list of satirical topics that it wanted to address. And it, you know, people talk about how uh, Josie Toto was sort of someone who deserved, you know, deserved that platform because it was a great role for her, but deserves now going forward. A bigger platform as well. And I don't know necessarily that I that a lot of the young casts other than her, I look at them and go, ah, let's get them all on new shows. But uh, Josie Toda, extraordinarily funny on that show. Um, so, yeah, look, we, we, we talk so frequently about the what is going on at, at Peacock, and I still don't know that I have the answer. They're still looking for that one thing that kind of becomes the here is the pivot around which everything else is going to build. Here is the thing that we will use as our defining feature going forward. And, you know, sometimes you get that and sometimes you, you know, you get your Handmaid's Tale or you get your House of Cards or Orange is the New Black and sometimes you keep searching for it and searching for it and searching for it. And I, I don't have any evidence that anything that Peacock has had is like that. You know, they keep, even when they try high profile stuff and I'll just keep beating the dead horse that is Joe versus Carol. I, I don't know that I heard a single human being talk about that show. And so, you know, that was the kind of thing that when they initially, initially migrated it, well, I guess when it started off being, NBC Union, sort of all of their properties, it was a big deal. By the time it became only Peacock, it was already so very much faded from the collective consciousness that I don't know that anyone really expected it anymore to be anything other than a high-profile burial, which is what it was. They're they're trying lots of things. and Yeah, and there's still yeah. a lot of deals that they have to work out 
you know, look, they still have NBC originals on Hulu, uh, you know, for next day airing on Hulu. Eventually those rights are going to come in to Peacock and you'll be able to watch all of those shows. Uh, the service announced this week that Bravo shows will be moving off of Hulu and onto Peacock the day after they air on the linear network. So, you know, look, you're encountering a lot of rights deals, right? You know, look at way back when, when we were at TCA and Kevin Riley said it was not a good idea for, to share content. And that basically paved the way for friends to move off of Netflix and onto HBO Max. And that's what we've seen everywhere. So when you look at some of these existing deals, once those expire, Peacock is going to bulk right up. But that also means a loss of revenue from those outside deals. So you're going to have to spend more, right? It's what everyone else is doing. And you look at what HBO Max has done. They have HBO Originals the day after or even the same. Actually, it's the same day. It's not the it's day the after. Same, it's it's like, the same day. You can watch Succession on HBO Max the minute, same minute that you watch it on on the, the linear network. So and you look at the Max Originals team and, and they've had a lot of success right out of the gate and, and they didn't launch the way they wanted to, obviously affected by the pandemic, like everybody else that launched at the same time. Right. But a lot of their originals have have really cut through in a way that Peacock's, you know, haven't necessarily done the same. You know, they still have some quality shows. Rutherford Falls comes to mind. Girls Five Eva, which is one of my favorites, you know, and back for its second season this month. But again, those are not, as you said, the big broad platform defining hits. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, there's still Angeline coming up, which is based on a Hollywood Reporter article from Sam Ismail and starring Emmy Rossum. And then Battlestar Galactica, which again, like Angeline, was also picked up by McGoldrick during his time at the streamer. That's still in the works, but we haven't really, there hasn't really been any news on this. I think they hired a director, but there's no cast. There's no production start date. Ismail has another project that he's doing for Peacock with the Palm Springs writer. He's got a couple other things in the works elsewhere. I, I just don't know when the Battlestar Galactica thing is going to come. And that would be an, a, a platform defining hit if done well. And you look at Ismail and his track record and you kind of, you know, the writing is on the wall for it to be done right. But again, He's got a m bunch of other stuff on his plate. He's got a huge overall deal at NBC Universal, which kept him and, you know, shelled out a lot of money to keep him because he was very, very close to signing with Amazon originally. So when you look at, at what Peacock is doing, it's like, well, maybe they are setting up themselves up so that they have the NBC originals the next day. So they don't need to keep greenlighting some of these, you know, you know, shows that basically could have been just aired on NBC as well. So you want to have like HBO Max has done, have complementary programming to what you're already getting. So HBO's content is very male-leaning. So what does HBO Max focus on? Well, a lot of female-skewing stuff, right? Love Life uh, comes to mind, Made for Love, even Minx, right? <laughs> even some shows that don't have love in the title. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, uh, The Sex Lives of College Girls, right? I mean, these are programs, you know, and, the, and just like that, The Sex and the City follow-up. These are female-front, female-leaning originals that complement HBO's very male-leaning roster. So they're trying to broaden that out. That was their strategy from the start. You know, and Peacock, I don't know. I don't know what the strategy was from the start because you kind of see what McGoldrick did and he had Saved by the Bell was his his pickup. Um, Punky Brewster, which was canceled, also his Brave New World, which he greenlit way back when he was doing USA and sci-fi originals. And, you know, it's like you're just looking to, to program that streamer and with a strategy that continues to evolve. So maybe now they're setting things up so that they have programming that's complementary to what they're already going to start getting. So I don't know. Which continues to be odd because I'm not even sure that you would necessarily know what the NBC brand really at this exact moment is, because at this point, the NBC brand is a lot of Dick Wolf shows and then some other stuff. 
And so, you know, unless they just want to turn Peacock over to Dick Wolf as well, which, you know. I mean, they spent nine <laughs> figures on library titles for for a bunch of Dick Wolf's programming and they still have all the SNL stuff. So it makes sense to do, you know, the brand extensions where you have shows from people who already have big library products, right? Like would Space Force have worked on Peacock instead because you already have Steve Carell there for the office? No. I don't know. <laughs> but would I'm you have gotten that would Peacock have spent the same money that Netflix did to get also, that Also no. Right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I who knows? Anyway, we, we feel sad for those of you who really enjoyed uh, uh, Saved by the Bell. And, you know, and even for one or two of you who really enjoyed Punky Brewster, I'm, I'm sure those people exist. Because, as I'll always say, everything is somebody's favorite show. That's right. Up next this week. Number three. It's time to look at the big calendar that's coming in May. With the deadline for Emmy eligibility this month, it is no surprise that May is jam-packed with a lot of high-profile new launches. So um, as we do every month on this show, I'm going to take a rundown presented in alphabetical order by platform. Amazon has The Wilds, Kids in the Hall, and whatever Night Sky is. I'm sure I've written about that and have absolutely zero recollection of what that is. Sissy Spacek and J.K. Simmons. Oh, that's that one. Okay, with great. A, with Fabulous. a sci-fi I'm glad twist. you know. I do. Apple, you can be, stay tuned for the Essex Serpent and Now and Then. Disney Plus, of course, has the Obi-Wan Kenobi. So, Dan, happy belated Star Wars Day and May the 4th have been with you as well. Over at HBO Max, you've got The Staircase and Season 2 of Hacks. HBO Proper has The Time Traveler's Wife. Not that, again, it, you, there's much designation between those two at this point because it is going to stream as well. Hulu will debut Candy, which will air over five straight nights starting May 9th and has the next Sally Rooney adaptation, Conversations with Friends. Mike Myers and the Pentaveret are coming to Netflix, which also has season four, part one of Stranger Things, which will uh, debut May 27th, the same day as Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney+. Plus. Who wants bragging rights? Let's see. Uh, elsewhere at Netflix, David E. Kelly's The Lincoln Lawyer, which was formerly developed at CBS, will finally rev its engine. Over at Paramount Plus, you've got Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Peacock has Girls 5 Eva Season 2 and Angeline. And Showtime has already launched. I love that for you. So, Dan, you've got a ton coming. And then we even haven't even talked about broadcast, where you've got the end of the 2021-22 broadcast season with a wave of season finales, including the series finale of NBC's This Is Us, as well as Ellen's last episode of her syndicated daytime talk show. So, Dan, there is a shit ton to break down here. What are you looking forward to? Hard to tell, exactly, because this is... I sort of got the impression as I was seeing things piling up that there were a ton of May shows I was excited for. And then I actually started divvying up the May reviews with our colleague Angie. And somehow the number was significantly lower than I had thought. So there are definitely things that people are going to be talking about in varying sizes and numbers. So, again, speaking of bubbles... One corner of my bubble is at least extremely excited about the triumphant return of the kids in the hall, just as a as a hypothetical. That's something where you may not see it everywhere, but the people who are talking about it are going to be extremely excited about it. But when you look at the sort of the bigger picture 
broader titles that really are trying to sneak under the wire in time for Emmy consideration, it's a somewhat smaller number than I, I had thought it was going to be at some point. So obviously Stranger Things, which has been a major Emmy player each of its years, is going to be right there again. Um, and basically all anyone has been talking about about the new season has been a combination of wait, Netflix spent how much on the episodes and wait, the episodes are going to run how long? Well, that's not necessarily what Netflix is probably hoping that the buzz is going to be about once the thing actually premieres. But at least in the short term, that sort of gossip does keep people talking about the show. And so that's that's a thing. I think that probably Obi-Wan Kenobi is designed to be a, a wide title. I think it's, you know, it's Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen and those various people returning. The trailers make it look like it's kind of in the same vein as Boba Fett and Mandalorian, which is to say a lot of filming in the desert. Uh, apparently, we've decided that Tatooine is is just about the only place in the Star Wars world that we can set things. So, yay? I don't know. Looks like it could be fine. Uh, also, at the end of the month, and you didn't mention this, there's Pistol on FX, the Sex Pistols miniseries directed by Danny Boyle. So that's clearly something that someone figures has awards prospects. I mean, I'm curious about uh, Night Sky. You know, the sissy space like J.K. Simmons, you know it's going to be well-directed, and it's got a, a sci-fi thing that makes it sound like sort of the, I don't know, <laughs> sort of like Outer Range only with Sissy Spacek and J.K. Simmons. It sounds like and there's... without a giant hole? Uh, but there's something else that is transporting people into into different realms. There's It's not a giant hole, but it's something like it. I haven't actually gotten around to watching it yet, uh, but it's definitely something that's transporting people. And, you know, Time Traveler's Wife, based on a beloved book that then became a not particularly beloved movie, so they're kind of trying it again, and they're trying it at a moment at which half of the shows on TV involved their main characters time traveling, it feels like. There were at least three or four last month, so might as well add that to the pile. I don't really know where the enthusiasm is for something like The Lincoln Lawyer. It was, you know, it was a movie that was kind of carried by being the start of the Matthew McConaughey renaissance, the McConaissance, if you will. And I don't know that the excitement was necessarily about the property. It was about, okay, cool, here's an actual good vehicle for Matthew McConaughey. And this is not going in that direction. So I don't know. Uh, the, definitely this month, or actually last month, I guess now, because April was kind of characterized by a lot of the returning, the long absent returning shows, whether it was Atlanta airing new episodes, Better Call Saul airing new episodes, um, Barry airing new episodes. And so those are all carrying over into May. And honestly, I'm more excited about those than just about anything this month. I've, I've seen a couple of new episodes of, of Hacks and there is a, an embargo, so I can't discuss it. I feel like the embargo might be up by the time this premieres but i'm still oh, watching just drop episodes. a hint or two dan come on i just so far so good is all i'm there saying you. um but <laughs> i want to watch all six before i give a full review but i've seen uh three so far so i will probably watch more tonight uh but yeah so maybe there's a little bit less of the huge big exciting titles coming back than there were last month and the month before. And so a lot is resting on Stranger Things, and we'll see. I don't know that anyone has actually seen any of the 
new episodes. I know definitely there have been no screeners sent out. So, so who knows, you know, and, and I don't suspect that Netflix is going to hide that one. It's not the Pentaveret where Netflix very, 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 very specifically hid that one from critics. Thus, it will not be discussed in Critics Corner because if Netflix doesn't want me to watch that show, oh, am I going to let Netflix steer me on that one? Perfectly happy to not watch. Uh, what else is there in May? I'm kind of looking forward to Shorzy. You didn't mention Shorzy, the Letterkenny spinoff that's coming on May 27th to Hulu. I don't know that I needed a spinoff based around the Shorzy character. Uh, in fact, I'm actually fairly sure I didn't. But I'm also curious enough to see what it actually looks like to watch more. But really, people should just watch Letterkenny. So if you haven't seen Letterkenny, watch Letterkenny. Anyway, another another busy, busy month and and sort of plunked right down in the middle of it. There's going to be upfronts. So if you feel like there's not enough actual airing television to get you excited, you can start getting excited about what's coming to television in the fall because... Yeah, there's going to be there's going to be a lot to discuss. There will, in fact, be a, an entire week where there's too much TV to discuss and we just aren't going to bother with another guest. We're just going to ramble on about upfronts and that'll yeah, be I fun. Mean, <laughs> next week is tech is what I like to call hell week where pretty much everything that's on the bubble either gets renewed, canceled and all the pilots. There's decisions on all the pilots. But because of the late start date on a lot of the pilots, a lot of these haven't even been finished finished casting, let alone started production. So you're you know whether there is a lot of news, I'm sure there will be, but it's probably going to be when you look at volume of of new series orders. I think it'll be more in line with what we've seen coming out of the pandemic, where again these networks have said we're going to do year round development, but instead we're going to get pickups far after upfronts all year round. I think they're going to shift, you know, we've seen that shift into year round development and everything else, but there's still a much development going on during pilot season. And I think you will, you will see some pickups without the benefit of a finished pilots or based on sizzle reels. Um, you know, there's a great story that our uh, colleague Nelly Andriva reported over at deadline about the big trend of picking up th these things based on the, the script document or the pitch documents and everything else or sizzle reels or the dailies. Or the strength of the creators and the cast. So, yeah, I mean, the overall pilot volume was down this year. We've talked about that already. But, yeah, you'll see a bunch of renewals. You'll see a bunch of cancellations, especially at the CW. And probably more of the same. So that's that's next week. And then the following week is all the, the upfront presentations where we get to hear the fall schedules and probably some what I would anticipate are, are a couple of surprise announcements from the stage if if history has anything to teach us. Um, but yeah, the next two weeks are crunch time for broadcast networks. So if you care about that, well, we got you covered coming up next week and the week after. And if you don't care about that, you're listening to a strange podcast. Yeah, you all really are listening to a weird podcast. If you don't <laughs> care about anyway, well, that's May. So Dan, up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Jessica Beale, the star and executive producer of Hulu's five-night limited series, Candy. The series is based on the true crime story of Candy Montgomery, who in 1980 killed her friend Betty Gore with an axe. Beale, who stars opposite Melanie Linsky in Candy, has been increasingly active as an executive producer via her Iron Ocean banner, with series including USA Network anthology The Sinner and Freeform's Cruel Summer. As an actress, Beale's credits include Seventh Heaven, The Sinner, and Facebook Watch's Limetown. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me, guys. 
So let's start when you first joined Candy. You originally signed uh, signed on after Elizabeth Moss had a scheduling conflict and dropped out as Candy Montgomery. What made taking on this killer role appealing to you? Well, I, I think initially the scripts were so elegantly written. The story was so complex, but but interestingly told. And um, I, I just loved Robin's writing and Nick and Nick's writing. And then when I started to really dive into who she was and it or is and was, um, the psychological elements of of her story, why did she do what she did, is super compelling to me. I'm endlessly fascinated in uh, fascinated with you know the human condition and putting myself in somebody else's shoes because I really believe as much as I'm a totally nonviolent person and, you know, have never done anything like that. And really I'm planning to never do anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) That is my plan. Um, I just, I, I do feel like I'm capable of things that I don't expect. And I don't know we're all capable of these things. You know, you just never know. And I, and I think that's why I'm always so interested in these types of characters who have a past and get triggered or, or, you know, um, something compels them to, to do these crazy things. Um, so I guess the character itself was really intriguing. The writing was really intriguing. I think the package with Robin, I loved the act and I was interested to work with Hulu. Like, you know, there's a lot of pieces that come together that, um, that I think kind of really peak at least pique my interest. And what about your preparation for the part? I mean, did you, how did you prepare? What kind of research did you do? All types of different stuff. Um, I I think initially started off, of course, reading anything that was, that was there to read the Texas monthly article, which is a really nice deep dive into that story back from the eighties, I think, or nineties. And this amazing book called evidence of love by these two incredible investigative journalists who really, to me, dove so deeply into this community and this world and this story and actually spoke to the survivors, to Candy herself, to the community, you know, kind of at large there at that time. So really have firsthand experience with a lot of these people. And that book was just such a resource for me all the time. I would go back to it to, you know, uncover new things and be reminded of little tiny tidbits of treasures that I could, you know, incorporate, even if it was just sort of for me only. Um, I looked at all the court documents, thousands of pages. I didn't get through everything, but, you know, there were just hundreds and hundreds of pages of court documents, um, testimonies, um, also one of the most interesting pieces of information was the, uh, the many hypnotism transcripts, which everything's written out and they're just, you know, page by page of exactly what she said, exactly what happened in those sessions. That was just such a big moment of in her story of why she did the things that she did. So that was highly important to the research then, you know, really looking into like, what is a dissociative personality? And I really believe that she had this kind of a personality. 
and a narcissistic kind of a personality. Um, so looking into the psychology of those ideas. And then after that, you know, kind of collaborating all this information, getting all of this technical stuff, then finding a parallel into my own life, throwing everything away and just showing up on set and hoping it all kind of gels together. <laughs> you know, from the start, you know, and, and even I think for those who aren't familiar with the actual case and what happened, you know, viewers know that Candy did this as the show, as you said, is more of a why done it than a who done it. So, yeah. you know, when you kind of stay take a step back and after you've read all the scripts and everything and you know, and having obviously completed production, what do you really hope the show says about the why behind the, this murder? Well, what the show is trying to say and what we were trying to work really hard to convey to our audience is that we're telling one side of the story. Now, if you believe the why she did it and why she deserved to get off, that's up to you. You know, I go back and forth about it all the time. You know, why did she commit this murder? The, I, what I have learned is, you know, the, the, re, the repression of her real feelings, her, her, you know, learning, watching her, I don't know, her generation or her mother or her parents or whatever it is to, you know, create this perfect lifetime, life, life, and, you know, don't complain about it and don't be upset about it and look how great it is. And you have nothing to be mad about. So don't even try it kind of a thing. All of this built up rage and guilt and shame and regret and all this stuff, I believe, besides the triggering effect of what happened to her when she was a young girl with her mother and what her mother said to her, which then Betty repeated to her in that one moment of conflict, that is why this happened. She snapped. Could it have been anybody standing in front of her? Yeah. I don't think this was a necessarily a Betty thing. I don't think she despised this woman and 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 was you know raging jealous of this woman i don't believe that i think it was just she was like in the wrong place at the wrong time and this person just got triggered so badly so those are some of the things that i feel are why it happened because that's what i've read and that is what candy's story is we are just telling candy's story which is something i want to make clear we do not have betty's story and i know that's obvious but we are really not trying to say that this is the truth. This is somebody's truth. And people believed that truth. I don't know. You know, I go back and forth all the time. So much of the context here is grounded in the depiction of the sexual politics of marriage. And it's a very specifically early 1980s view of marriage, but the series likes to go back and forth between making you think, God, this is wildly dated, and boy, this is really, really similar today. What was your own journey with the project as you were in the middle of it, of thinking, okay, this is an outlandish, this is, isn't it great that we're so much better than this now, but then also, you know, wouldn't it be great if we were better than this now? <laughs> that is such a poignant question and statement, and you're right, right? We we have made huge leaps and bounds in terms of these really sort of um, like archetypal, traditional, more conservative 
gender roles in marriage and, um, you know, and how we relate to each other in terms of intimacy or sexuality with your partner in a marriage. Um, we have obviously made huge leaps and bounds, but then we also haven't, you know, uh, the same kind of thing I think happens for people all the time. I mean, I experienced my own version of inability to communicate to the people I love my real true feelings without feeling like I should suck it up and just be okay with it. You know, I struggle with that now. Um, so it, <laughs> I think it's part of the reason I really, I, I empathize with this person and I empathize with this story and my journey with it has taken me very close to some of the things that I struggle with in my own life. I just haven't taken it to the extreme in that way, you know? Um, and that's, that's always a way in for me is where I find a parallel in my life. Even if it's just a sliver of like, Oh, I know that feeling of isolation. I know that feeling of, I don't know how to tell my partner what I want right now, or I, I want something different. And I, and I just, I'm incapable of saying it. Like it could be as simple as that, but that for me is the way into somebody who is just going through the same thing, but makes a different decision than I made or, or was put in a position that I've never been put in. Um, and I, and I think this, the question of the journey is I, I went back and forth all the time. I, I felt often this old, you know, this is, this is like a, this is like analog, like no one behaves like this. And then the next, next day I'm like, God, I just totally understand this feeling. Like this is, it's like a human condition. That's the same over as like so many generations, which feels crazy and sometimes really sad, but also it's just these, these archetypes are hard to bust out of fully, you know? And the journey here is not a, it's not a straight line because the series uses a, a heavy time jumping structure, which is a very good way to build the mystery. But I feel like it could have been hell in terms of building a cohesive acting performance. So I'm curious, how was this actually shot in terms of chronology and how did that either help you or, or produce challenges in terms of how you were building this woman's psychological portrait? Mm -hmm. Well, we, we shot, uh, luckily we were able to shoot the episodes in order, but like you're, like you're saying, the time and the years in the episodes are jump forward and back all the time. So it, it proposed many challenge. It posed many challenges to maintain the integrity of the psychological portrait of this, of this person. Um, I mean, we were constantly checking ourselves like, wait, what, what does she know? What happened? Wait, that, that's already happened. When did, how long ago was the affair? Wait a minute. We're two months <laughs> at, like we were always constantly like, like Tim and I were always checking each other. Like, do they know about it? Does he, did he, did she tell, did he find out already? Wait a minute. He did find out already. Okay. That changes everything. You know, it was hard to keep everything straight. Definitely. Um, but I agree with you. It, it does elongate and, and, and sort of, um, it, it, it stretches out this, this mystery in a way that's, that's, that feels really satisfying because 
we're also not spoon feeding anything. You really kind of have to pay attention and sort of put the pieces together yourself. And I, I, I really love when a project will, you know, maintain the integrity of the audience and how, how smart and how capable, you know, our, our TV audiences these days, and, and you can give them just enough and they can figure it out. You know, you don't have to spoon feed it anymore. Well, going from sort of the the internalized psychological aspect of the story on set, how long did it take for the conversation to cease to be exclusively about wigs, mustaches, and high waisted pants? Like, do you ever <laughs> do you ever get over the ridiculousness of all of that? Not really. I, I think we continued to have discussions about wigs, mustaches, and high waisted pants. Um, I mean, every time Pablo and Tim walked on set with their, you know, super tall bodies and their giant pants up to here, we were all just, oh my God, you guys, you look so crazy amazing. Um, (laughs) It never got old. Like it never got old to see Tim in a light blue baby jumpsuit. It never got old to see Pablo with his uh, stash and, you know, his like tiny yellow car, right? Watching him try to get into that yellow car, like... It was it was just like built in comedy, um, and I think we all just enjoyed we enjoyed totally transforming and being in a different world, being in a different time and place, and really looking at yourself in the mirror and looking at your colleagues, going like, I don't know where I am, but I'm not me, and that's help. That's helping right now. <laughs> well, I mean, your character in particular. Her hair is one of those things where your first reaction to it is, there's no way a human being had that hair. Then you, of course, go to Google and you do a Google image search and you go, oh, my God, she had that exact haircut. How long did it take to find the exact little orphan Annie wig, basically, that you have to be wearing for a lot of this? (laughs) You know, it took it took one fitting where we were with the wig maker and we tried on a handful of different lengths and shapes and colorways. And I mean, the number one was, would that short, tight perm, would it look crazy on me? Would it look, would it look crazy and distracting for our audience? That was number one, because we weren't going to do it if I put that thing on and we all went, you know, (laughs) It was, it was weird because I put it, I, I mean, this is a wig that doesn't fit me, right? You know, this is not made for me yet. This is just any wigs that our wig makers had. And we put it on and I looked over at Robin and she goes, this is going to work. This is going to work. <laughs> and she had these big sunglasses, like these crazy eighties, like, you know, kind of hipster, modern hipster glasses, which is like all vintage anyway. And she handed me her glasses. And then I put these giant glasses on. So, and then we all saw it. We were like, okay, that's, it's going to be okay. Like I, for whatever reason can, can support that hairdo, which I never thought was possible. (laughs) Um, And so it was this one fitting that we did. We picked the length, we picked the color and sort of matched it to kind of my own color a little bit and a little bit different, you know, not so much like a, you know, more like regular highlights through the top of it. Um, and then we crossed our fingers 
And then when that wig showed up, that was, we had two made, I think. And that was it. We just went with it. Did you do any of the, uh, you hear tell of people occasionally going out into the world in their onset costumes and seeing how people react. Did you actually go out and, and crowdsource how that wig was working for you? <laughs> I wish I had thought about doing that, but we were in the middle of crazy COVID and going out was just not even happening. You know, I, I was like, not even, I was take a walk around the park that I lived close by when I was shooting in Atlanta, this outside park area, take my kid to the park and maybe go to this one restaurant that had a, had a, a like a private eating area, which we would sometimes occasionally rent out. That's like it. I didn't even, I didn't like go to a bar and like check, you know, test it out. But one day filming, we were shooting right next to a bookshop, a, like this really cool kids bookshop and a, like YA and kids bookshop. And I walked over in my full getup and I just was shopping. I was shopping for my kids and grabbing a bunch of different books for them. And I had to get a gift and I was doing all this stuff. And I remember the people in there giving me a couple, like a once over, like what? what is going on with this lady? I mean, then they heard about the filming and then I heard them, I overheard them saying, man, the, the, the hair and makeup and the wardrobe look great. Like, so they, they had heard a little something. And at first they were not sure about me because when you see that kind of, those kinds of, that kind of hair, makeup and wardrobe, you look so mature. You know what I mean? It's so weird. I looked like my grandmother. Every time I put that wig on, I was like, I really look like my grandmother. It's so strange how these outfits and this wig and this, it just, it like adds 10 or 20 years onto you. It's so interesting. Well, and she was like 29 at the time this happened, wasn't she? She was some, she was, she was way younger than you think she was, was my, was my takeaway. <laughs> way younger than you think. And yeah, I, I was 10 years older when I was playing her and she looked 10 years older than me, you know? <laughs> uh, one thing I, I do want to talk about, you know, you mentioned shooting this during, you know, the height of COVID. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but there are a couple of very, very memorable cameos in subsequent episodes. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the why behind those cameos? Was it simply because that was what was easy and everyone was in the bubble or was there something more to it? And You know, that actually... That makes a lot of sense now that you said it because everyone was already in the bubble. Um, but no, the, the, the one particular cameo you're talking about, that person read the script because we were sharing ideas and you know notes and stuff. And they said, I want to play that part. And I just thought they were kidding. I thought there's no way. I said, this is, we, ha we don't have any money, first of all. This is we're hiring a local, we're hiring a local person for this. We 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 spent all our money on our main cast. And we're done. And they said, um, "I don't care. I want to play this part. I see the way in. I I really get it. I I love this. I want to do this." So <laughs> we called my producing partner Michelle. She called Robin, and Robin literally jumped out of her chair. I'm like, yes, of course, that would be insane. How lucky? How amazing would that be? So then they met, and they kind of got got excited and started talking about ideas and they were sort of telling her what they were thinking. And it was just a match made in heaven there. 
And then after that, the second cameo, that was Robin's idea. She goes, well, if that person is playing that person, then this person, are you liking this right now? I love so it. Yeah. Then this person should play this person because of that reenactment sequence. Because it's so meta to have these two people who are connected to Melanie and I in these certain ways um, play these parts because they are then going to play us as, as their characters. Their characters will be playing our characters. Like it was so, <laughs> it was so many layers upon layers of, it was just like meta on meta on meta on meta. And we all, our brains exploded with how funny it was. We just thought it was so funny and weird. So it was, that was really Robin's idea to, to get that second person in there. And I don't know, it just, it was, it was just a, it was a, a lucky, lucky, lucky get. <laughs> it was very, 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 very cool. I will say. And you did fabulous answering that question without spoiling anything. So, <laughs> um, you know, I do want to talk about producing, you know, look, when you, when you joined Candy, you also boarded as an exec producer, you know, at that point in time, I would imagine that a lot of the the scripts were already done. But, you know, I'm curious, you know, as now a veter veteran producer, you've done The Sinner and a couple of other things, uh, Cruel Summer, which we'll talk about in a, in a second. But did you add anything? What was the, you know, when you put your producer hat on and you took the acting hat off, did you kind of look at this and say, well, there's one thing. What about this? You know, what, how did that how did that go? Definitely um, taking off one hat and putting on that other hat. Yeah, you start looking at the project in a different way, right? And you're really looking at so many technical things. How are we going to do this? How can we do this better? What about the story? What about the development of the script and all that stuff? I mean, the, the one thing that I've learned after doing a couple shows now is being a producer means you're, you're, you're going to be doing something different for every project. It is so crazy how different and, and, and how, how my role changes with every different project I do. It, it's, it still startles me how, how different it can be. Um, and in this particular one, Robin had already done such major development on it. The script, the first couple scripts were in great shape. So we were doing notes with Hulu. We were looking at, you know, the structure of everything. And of course, my character was like fine tuning here and there, but to know when to just shut up and sit down and just let your creator do their thing is an important thing to know. And that's the kind of experience we had on this one. She was so zoned in on exactly what needed to happen. And we were nudging and, you know, pushing here and there. And we were always in line with Hulu's notes, which was an amazing, amazing collaboration. Um, so the development of that was pretty easy because she's so talented. <laughs> she and Nick and all of our writers are just, they were just, they just had it. They'd ha they had it. And it was sort of like, just get out of the way, you know? Your transition into producing, it began seven or eight years ago. You had the Book of Love for a feature and then The Sinner. Was there sort of in, in storytelling or screenwriting terms, was there an instigating event that let you know that you needed to or wanted to add producing to your arsenal? I think it was probably a collection of events. Um, feeling like I was really grateful that I had a career, the career that I had. Michelle and I started our company when I was 21. 
just, sorry, just turning 22. And I just turned 40. So we've been at this for quite a long time. It took us 10 years to make Book of Love. And the, the, co- the collection of incidents were just a million moments where I was not thought of by even my own team for a great part. And then I didn't get that part. And then, nope, they won't see me for that part. And nope, I can't do that thing. It was so many no's. It was just like, people saw me one way and that was kind of it. Um, And part of that, I understand, was the things I had been doing up to that point. But I was was kind of stuck in this rut of like, I, I, I was doing the things that were, were cool, but they weren't necessarily terribly creatively fulfilling all of them. And finally, Michelle and I, we were both working on stealth and she was running Rob Cohen's company. And we were, we were just, you know, doing this big giant action movie, you know, very kind of masculine. And it was, su- it was super fun. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoyed myself. And I met one of my best friends and of my life and my you know, career partner, but we, we just kind of looked at each other and we were like, I don't know, I kind of just kind of want to make a different kind of a movie. What about you? You know? And we started talking, we started watching old movies. We started watching John Hughes comedies. We started watching all the things we grew up and we had the same taste and we loved the same stuff. And I think I was just saying to her, like, I'm frustrated. I, I think I can do more. I know I can do more. I have more to give in my career and I'm not getting any opportunity that I really, really want. And every time I fight for something, I, I lose out because of, you know, a multitude of different reasons. And I, I need to take charge. Like I have to take control of my life, of my career. Otherwise I think it's going to pass me by and I'm going to regret it. And I'm not going to be doing what I want. I'm not going to be fulfilled. So that's what we did. She she stopped working for Rob. Whenever that happened, I don't remember. And we said, let's do this. Let's, let's make this little company and let's see what happens. You know, and obviously from that stemmed the center, you've had a couple of overall deals that you think you were at Universal for a long time now at, now at Paramount. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think you're doing Cruel Summer for Freeform, which is heading into its second season, just had some major news come up where there was a shift, obviously, along the line at some point where it went from being an ongoing series to a potential anthology with a new cast. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the evolution of that show and how you've envisioned it? And how that's changed. Yeah. Um, Cruel Summer is, uh, is like our little baby. Sort of Sinner was like our little baby. And now this is like our next little baby where we're working with these incredibly up and coming young actors and actresses and also very established and amazing, amazing performers. But we're, we're really getting this wonderful gift of, of meeting these, this new energetic talent that, that are, you know, more fresh faces. And you know, you make it, you make your first season and you really don't know, you really don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't know if anyone's going to ever see it. You don't know if anyone's going to like it. And then you get into a situation where, wow, people really liked it and they saw it. And now, oh, wow, we just got it. Okay. Season two, what does that look like? And it's been one of these tricky shows because it's, it is such a complex storytelling format. And the three different timelines are so tricky to get right. And to, you know, drop the right Easter eggs at the right moment and to continue to uh, reveal little small mysteries until you get to this end climactic mystery thing um, with all of these interesting young psychological dramas going on. Um, 
And I think it it's sort of changed into this anthology idea because it was part of the way I felt about it was it was it was like the first season of The Sinner. Okay, do you bring Cora back for season two? What does that look like? She's in a mental institution for like two years, and then what? Like, do, do, do you want to watch that show? Is it just like d- depression upon depression and miserable? She has never family anymore. Like, we kind of really thinking about that in that way. And that's why for that we thought we need we need a whole new story. We need a new person to come in, a new mystery, and that's kind of the way it felt with Cruel Summer. Is now that you know this about Jeanette, where do you go from there? You know, can we, can an audience get behind that character? Is it possible? You know, so it was, it was a tough decision because we love that cast and you start, you know, you know, this cast. So starting all the way over from scratch again is really hard, but we just felt as the full creative team, studio network creative you know, all of our writers, our creator, everybody, we just felt, you know, let's take a risk and let's start, a, let's start from scratch and let's create a new mystery and let's meet a new cast. Um, we felt that that was a fresher idea than trying to take a character that we really turned it on its head at the very end of the season and now kind of force a you know, like a square peg into a round hole to, to just because you know the character to make it work again. <clears throat> it's a risky move. Is it going to work? Honestly, I don't know. I hope so. I hope it'll work. But um, it's just, you know, this, this particular one is just not without a lot of complications in, in terms of <laughs> creative and things changing and things having to evolve because of outside uncontrollable. Yeah, a couple of showrunner changes, yeah. Yep. I, I would be remiss if we had you on and I didn't ask you quickly about BoJack Horseman. Um, <laughs> at this point, are there people who recognize you specifically from that show? And how are those interactions different than when a Seventh Heaven or Blade Trinity fan approaches you? Um, there are some people that will approach me solely for BoJack. I mean, there are some diehard fans and that's such a great show. It's so fun. It's so fun to be a part of a part of it. I mean, it's weird, right? Because you come in for such a short little thing. And then I don't talk to those guys for like two years. And then I'll get another random call and be like, Hey, you want to come back? We got something for you. I'm like, I'm there. So I'll just show up and like, say hi and do something for an hour. And then I'm gone. You know, it's, it's kind of really in and out. So it's, it's a different experience, obviously, because it's animation and, you know, you're not on set with everybody and doing this whole thing and, you know, with your physical person. Um, but it's a it, you know it's a it's a different demographic and it's um I, I love it because it's it's really just fun to make fun of yourself you know it's really fun to for people to think of me one way and then watch that show and are like oh so you do have a sense of humor and you're like <laughs> you can totally laugh at yourself yeah I can I I, I can do that <laughs> um, it's fun I I really I love running into people who love that show. Have you, in the course of sort of Hollywood interactions, have you had the chance to chat with Zach Braff and apologize for any of the horrible things that you did to him? <laughs> I've known Zach for ages. I mean, we have we've been we've been in and around this business in this in this city for 
God, probably 20 plus years. I think he will forgive me. I think I will be forgiven for all that. I don't know. It was pretty, it was pretty bad, some of that stuff. So, you know, I don't know how you forgive all of it. <laughs> well, you know what? I guess I, you just got to ask for forgiveness later. I haven't seen him in a while. We'll see what happens next time we run into each other. Maybe you'll just give me the silent treatment and never speak to me again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do sadly have to wrap up now, but uh, we always like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? I love this question because I love TV and I love watching shit. Um, I've been enjoying Severance. I have been enjoying The Girl from Plainville, um, The Dropout. I loved... I've, I've recently finished Squid Game. I kind of, I'm kind of behind the, the ball on some of these ones because I get busy with my kids and busy at work. And then I, I'm that binger, that like crazy binger that'll go like two or three nights in a row and watch it all. I just, I recently rewatched Sopranos, which I love. I'm excited for, is normal people returning? Something's returning. Uh, I, uh, her, Sally Rooney's follow up or one of her other books conversations is, with friends yes. conversations with friends yes. exactly huge fan of those books huge fan of her huge fan of that show i'm stoked for that oh there's something really cool interesting what's it called mr mr nowhere mr nobody that australian that like cool weird little oh the fx the fx show what's it called now now i'm blanking on Me it too. Uh, but <laughs> But yes, the FX, the FX hitman drama uh, from Australia. I, yes, I've we been are. getting into that. I like that a lot too. And I've been into um, what's Elle's other, what's Elle Fanning's other show? The 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 great, the great, the great. Yeah. That is so irreverent and fun. I love I, I love that. That's what I've. What have, what have you been watching? Mr. In Between, by the way, I, I had to make sure that we actually got the name of the title of the FX show right. Uh, Mr. In Between. Mr. But... In Between. Thank you. Thank you. No, it seems like you're watching a lot of the good stuff, you know. So, uh, watch, watch Pachinko on Apple TV. If you've watched, if you're done with Severance, go to Pachinko next. Okay. But. Okay. <laughs> awesome. You're right. That is next. That's next on the docket. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. It was a really nice, uh, fun conversation. So, thanks for liking the show or being curious about the show. Candy airs over five nights on Hulu, starting on May 9th. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Girls 5 Eva, which is back for its second season on Peacock. Netflix launches The Pentaveret with Mike Myers, which you've already said you won't be reviewing and you haven't seen it. HBO Max has The Staircase, which I know you're very excited about. Amazon returns to the wilds. And you just heard our interview with Jessica Beale about Candy, which, as you mentioned, airs over five consecutive nights starting Monday. Dan, what you got? Ah, so much stuff, so much stuff, so much stuff. Um, yes, we're ignoring the Pentaveret. Uh, I have not gotten to Girls 5 Eva episodes, so I'm ignoring that as well, because I had a bunch of things that were premiering mid to late this week that I had to review, including, as you mentioned, The Staircase. The Staircase, like everything else on television over the past month and a half, is based, of course, on the... On the true crime, in this case, documentary, some of the things premiering in the last six months have been based on true crime podcasts, true crime movies, sometimes just, you know, true crime. Uh, so, yes, The Staircase is based on the uh, William Peterson murder case and trial, or Kathleen per Peterson, his wife. Um, and The Staircase, of course, for those who don't know, is the fairly seminal 
true crime documentary series. Uh, my review, I, I said it was serial before serial and the jinx before the jinx. And I think it is as good as those. Um, and if you haven't seen it, I strongly recommend it. And it's better than the TV series. But the TV series isn't bad. And I said in my review that probably the best way to have watched the documentary series in preparation for the scripted series is to have watched it a couple of years ago. Basically, if you remember it too well, maybe the adaptation, which is uh, created by Antonio Campos and show run by Campos and Maggie Cohen, um, it, you know, it sticks fairly closely to history. So uh, if you've just watched the documentary series, I can imagine that a lot of this would feel repetitive. But if, however, you watched it a few years and you remember parts of it and you're kind of intrigued to have things reminded to you, I think it actually works really well for that. It, it is extremely well and extremely smartly directed. Sometimes it pays direct homage to the uh, to the documentary series. Sometimes it does its own thing visually. It has a nice, graceful use of the key set, which is the uh, main family home. You have Colin Firth, who is very good in the lead role. I am still always going to be somewhat disappointed that Harrison Ford didn't end up doing that because I think that would have been a, a very interesting I don't know. Not It wouldn't be a change of course for him because, of course, one of his best known and most beloved roles is as a man who was accused of killing his wife and insisted several times that he did not do that. And people told him that they did not care and whatnot. Um, and then he went off and he was a fugitive of some sort. And I don't remember what that one was called. Um, but anyway, yes. So <laughs> Colin Firth is good. And it's a, it's a very good cast. It's yet another one of these based on true crime things that has a ensemble of of a million different people. So his co-stars here include uh, Tony Collette, who is very good as, as his deceased wife, Kathleen does a very good job of, of bringing someone who in the documentary series really is just, you know, she's the, she's the dead wife. And here she actually gets to be alive and in many scenes and, and gets to give that character a personality, which I think is good. But the cast also includes, Juliette Binoche. It includes Parker Posey with a very strange but also amusing Southern accent as one of the uh, prosecutors in the case. Lots of young actors play the members of the Peterson family. So you have Sophie Turner, you have Odessa Young, Dean DeHaan, um, Olivia DeYoung, who is not Odessa Young, but it seems as if they have basically the same name. Then you have Bunches and bunches and bunches of good character actors and supporting roles. Michael Stilbarge, Tim Guiney. Um, it's, it is a, an above average version of a genre that we've seen a lot of these past few months. And I, like nearly everybody else, am becoming a little bit fatigued with everything needing to be based on a documentary series, everything needing to be based on a actual crime that happened, giving lots of good actors the chance to play dress up. It's, it, you know, it, it is a, a trend that is beginning to hit a point of fatigue with me. And I have to assume it is also hitting a degree of fatigue with some viewers. Some viewers have a totally insatiable appetite for all things true crime. And, you know, this is <laughs> this is their moment. But, yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, but seriously, though, I've seen five episodes of this. I like it. Um, 
several people asked on Twitter about the owl and whether it addresses the owl. And the answer to that question is, it appears that it is going to, but not in any depth thus far. Uh, also having premiered already this week is Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And this is yet another Paramount Plus Star Trek spin-off-y type show. This one is sort of the Muppet Babies version of the original to some degree because it is back on the USS Enterprise. It is uh, Captain Christopher Pike. No, not the uh, YA novelist who wrote the things where the teenage kids died. Uh, yay, Christopher Pike. Love that Christopher Pike. Much more invested in that Christopher Pike than Captain Christopher Pike of the Enterprise. Anyway, but I digress aggressively. Oh, seriously, like you out there, at least five or six listeners out there, totally, when they hear Christopher Pike, they only think of Christopher Pike, the YA novelist. Come on. Anyway, <laughs> you have Anson Mount playing Christopher Pike. You have Rebecca Romain playing uh, his second-in-command, number one, uh, and then a bunch of young actors playing young versions of the various original Star Trek casty type things. So some of them have already been introduced on Discovery. So people have seen Ethan Peck's interpretation of Spock, which I think is pretty good. Um, and then you have uh, Celia Rose Gooding, who is very good as Uhura. I think that she is probably likely to be a breakout here. You have Jess Bush, who's playing Nurse Chapel. So these are names that people know very well from the original franchise. I really liked Christina Chong, who plays La'an Nunian Singh, and people who know the franchise will know from her name that she has some relationship to Khan, etc. Leslie is giving a, I don't know the franchise, therefore I don't know these names. Look, I just want to hear you say, say that again. I am saying absolutely nothing again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And you're not but, singing. You still owe Pamela Adlon a song. We've, we've, moved, we've moved past my failures there. It will always haunt me, but I can't be haunted on a weekly basis by it. Uh, it is much more standalone. It is much more standalone and procedural in the way that the original Star Trek show was. The original Star Trek show was very much a, hey, what's the planet or alien civilization we're meeting this week? That's how it goes. Whereas both Picard and Discovery have been much more invested in mythology and sort of long-form serialized storytelling. This doesn't feel like it's going in that direction, and I think I actually appreciated it more for that. So critics have been said five episodes, which is half of the first season. It's already been renewed for the second season. They've already cast James Tiberius Kirk for the second season. So, you know, there are going to be many, many more Muppet Babies versions of the cast. But of the five episodes I've seen, like the original Star Trek, it is it's hit and miss. It's some episodes you're going to be amused by what they're doing. Other episodes you're not. I liked the lighter episodes. And so the lighter episodes, for heaven's sakes, the fifth episode is a body swap comedy. I am there for that kind of thing. Uh, I liked the episodes that had a little bit of fun with it when it's just outer space, pew, 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 invention, adventures. A little bit less excited, but it does those things okay. Uh, so yeah, not, not bad at all. And, uh, I would even go so far as to say probably good and probably likely to be the most easily embraceable of the spinoffs. So we'll see how that goes. And you just heard our interview with Jessica Beal. Um, and it, Candy is a great actor's showcase. Um, it, it really is. So Jessica Beal, the always great Melanie Linsky, Tim Simons, Pablo Schreiber. They're all very clearly having a 
blast dealing with horrifying 80s fashion, horrifying 80s hair. I'm still I've seen three episodes. Uh, I could have seen them all. Didn't have time because there's too much TV. Uh, (laughs) And I can see how it would wrap up in a satisfying way. So far, I'm not quite all there on how the story is being told, but it is absolutely a very interesting story with lots of interesting wrinkles to it um, and uh, axe murder. So, you know, if, if you like those sorts of things, it's got that. Um, so, yeah, uh, of this week's shows, definitely The Staircase is worth watching. It is a much better than average true crime adaptation. I think that Candy on Hulu is a is a decent true crime piece of storytelling as well. I think that if you felt as if there was too much emotional commitment required from the earlier Paramount Plus Star Trek shows, probably Strange New Worlds is well suited for your interests if you prefer to just sort of come and go. And if you don't like a plot to be like, whatever, screw it, I don't care. Uh, I think that probably it's designed for that kind of thing. You know, if, if you see in the first five minutes, oh, okay, I see what kind of episode this is. This is the... This is the there's an infection that sweeps through the Enterprise and everyone starts acting strange episode, which, you know, is a a trope that the franchise loves. Uh, And if you like that kind of trope, you're like, yay, this is one of those episodes. It's it's a lot like that. The five episodes I've seen, you recognize the shape pretty much of all of them. That's what it is. And as I mentioned, Netflix had no interest in critics reviewing the Pentaveret. And so I am not. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews and keep up with all of Dan's TV reviews and the entire THR critical team's coverage. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing, because it does help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to hear from you guys on Twitter. Come say hi. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, all of that good stuff. And for future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 